I don't do much preaching on weekends anymore, occasionally. And so sometimes people say, Pastor D, are you retired? I said, nope. I got lots I'm doing. And my number one uh, ministry is my leadership class. I teach uh, seven classes a week starting the 1st of October and going all the way until just a week ago. And uh, now they've finished for the summer, and then I'll start up again in October. And so in those classes, everybody in the class learns the importance of setting goals, the mechanics of how to set goals, uh, the importance of managing time well, how to do that, uh, basic disciplines of the Christian life, and how to be a man or a woman of great influence for God. And so that's the gist of the class. And so it's every week for an hour and about five to six hours of homework a week. And, uh, and so it'll be the fastest growing eight months of your life if you do it. And so we've got uh, three who are going to share tonight about uh, some aspect of the class. And I'm going to pray right now and then we'll start. Father, thank you so much for those who went through the class this year. And I pray that you'll bless each one, that you'll continue to guard them from the temptation of the evil one, that you'll do great things through their life in the days ahead as they live for you and serve you. Pray that you will help them to be faithful to all that they've learned and that they will bear much fruit for your, for your glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good evening. My name is Daniel Headings, and the topic I'm going to speak on tonight is entitled Happy Wife, Happy Life. Um, full disclosure, I got permission from my wife to speak on this topic, so she's not going to be surprised here. <clears throat> A major responsibility of the husband is to work hard at meeting his wife's basic needs. There are seven basic needs. I will briefly touch on each one. But first, I would like to give a little background on myself. My story starts in 1968, when I was born in a small town in northwest Florida. I was raised in a Christian home by two God-fearing parents. We attended a very small, conservative Mennonite church. Every Sunday morning, we would, take, we would make the 10-mile drive to church. Upon arrival, we would go in and sit down. My dad and I would sit on the right side with the rest of the men. Mom and my two sisters would sit on the left with the ladies. This was only on Sunday morning, not Sunday evenings or Wednesdays. I am not sure what the difference was. Maybe we were holier on Sunday mornings. <clears throat> this was and still is a common practice within these types of churches. As a young boy, at the age of eight, I accepted Christ as my savior and have done so many times since. As you can imagine, the church was very legalistic. There were lots of man-made rules to follow. My mother and sisters were not permitted to wear pants, and after being baptized were required to wear a head covering. Women were expected to follow Ephesians 5, 22 and 24, which reads like this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. This is exactly what my mom did. In fact, in all my growing up years, and even till this day, I have yet to hear my folks disagree about anything. I'm sure they have had discussions and perhaps arguments, but never in front of the kids. So this was my view of marriage as a child growing up. This is what the standard this, this was the standard that was set moving forward into the dating world. This is what loving your wife looked like to me. Needless to say, I had a lot to learn. The first basic need is security. As we read in Ephesians, the Bible commands wives be submissive to their husband. This position makes them very vulnerable to their husband's behavior, to, makes them very vulnerable to their husband's behavior, and they realize it. Husbands who are faithful who faithfully practice the basic disciplines of the Christian life, who are spiritual leader of their family, who manage their money well, will create an environment of security in their marriage. Also, a husband with self-control will give his wife a great deal of security. The second, second basic need is communication. This one has been kind of tough for me. Growing up, my dad was a man of very few words. I can remember going on trips with him, and in a five-hour span, we would, only, we would only have a few words exchanged between us. Needless to say, after we were married, I had to learn how to communicate with my wife. This has been a challenge for both of us. The goal is intimate communication, not just chit-chat. Quality time is great, but there is no substitute for quantity. Our wife wants and needs our time. The third basic need is unity. The best, dis the best discipline to produce this is praying together. Through this class, I have learned the importance of praying with my wife on almost a daily basis. Before, she would have to ask me to pray with her. Now it is a discipline or a habit. Usually in the morning before work, we will pray together. This does several things. It makes our mornings go smoother because if either one of us is upset with the other, it makes it difficult to pray before leaving for work. In the past, if we would argue or disagree, I would sometimes just leave, not say goodbye, just drive away fuming. Then sometime later during the day, one of us would call and apologize. Usually it would be her. The husband needs to be the peacemaker if he expects to be the leader. As a leader in the home, I must take it upon myself to be the first to apologize. Also, I must be willing to take responsibility for a problem, even if I feel it's not my fault. This is not an easy task to accomplish. I must swallow my pride and be willing to say I was wrong, even when I feel strongly that I am right. When this happens, it usually leads to discussion and being able to talk things out. In the past, I, was all, I would always try to get my point across and make sure I was never falsely accused or misunderstood. There is something freeing about not always having to be right. It brings freedom to the relationship. If my wife realizes that I am willing to shoulder disagreements, she can have more liberty in what she says and not fear retaliation. The fourth basic need is romance. In July of 1996, I was sitting on a Greyhound bus headed for New Orleans. Upon reaching New Orleans, I boarded a Southwest flight for Portland International. It was a one-way ticket. The reason for this trip was work. My friend Dave 
had called from Amity and needed help on the farm. He had been injured in a farming accident and had severely damaged his foot and needed a farmhand hand to help in the busy harvest season ahead. I don't remember <clears throat> much about the flight or the bus trip. What I remember very clearly is being picked up by my friend Dave's brother, Rollin. As we started walking through the airport parking lot, we met a group of people and one of them was my future wife. As we met and walked past, there was a slight acknowledgement to Rollins, so I figured maybe he knows something about them. He said he knew the family and told me where they were, were from. I inquired about the pretty young lady in the group. It was, I was very intrigued. It turns out that she and her family had just moved to the area and we would be attending the same church. We started dating in September of 1996 and got married a year later on her birthday. During that year of dating, we would do many things together. There was lots of romance, things like opening the car door for her, finding out her likes and dislikes, getting to know her interests and things that make her happy and sad, all the little things we do to make a good impression, saying I love you often, deeds of kindness, and lots of dates. These are things that need to continue even after we are married to keep romance alive. The fifth basic need is to be understood. Husbands should learn their wife's temperament. In other words, what makes them tick? There are five different temperaments. Find the one that belongs to your wife. Husbands should learn their wife's spiritual giftedness and encourage her to develop and use it. A wife's weakness should also be understood. Not to use it against her, but to encourage her and to let her know that you understand. If I know her weakness, I can help her navigate through certain areas and situations. Also know your wife's passions. Help her find ways to achieve them. After we were married, we tried starting a family, but were not successful. We explored different avenues and possibilities like adopting and foster care, but never settled on either one. My wife comes from a big family. She is one of seven children. There are 23 nieces and nephews from her six siblings. I would venture to say that she is their favorite aunt. They are her passion. She loves her nieces and nephews. She has one day a week set aside to help take care of them. She usually has them over to our house and enjoys being with them. She teaches them and tries to help the parents if there is a, certain, if there is a need in a certain area that they need help with. I think she looks forward to this day as much as the children. The sixth basic need is to be honored. What does it mean to honor one's wife? For me, it means that I put my, wife's, that I put my wife on a pedestal. I need to acknowledge her presence no matter where we are or who's around. It was intended by God that a married woman get her self-worth from her husband. I never realized that that was my responsibility. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are both heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. Seventh, seventh basic need is significance. Praise her for living out her faith and teaching it to your children. Tell her how much you appreciate her example in installing, instilling her faith in your children. If she teaches a Sunday school class, 
if she uses her talents for the Lord, remember to praise her. Praise your wife for her submission to your headship, especially when it is hard to do. You might have to make a decision as the head of your home that she disagrees with, but when she recognizes your authority to do so and follows you, follows you even when she disagrees, don't forget to show your appreciation for that. Don't take for granted. Praise your wife for her wisdom. When she gives you advice that really helps you make a good decision and praise her when she gave you advice that you didn't follow but later found to be right. Praise her for every meal she makes, even if it does not taste good. Praise the effort. Praise her. And notice when she cleans the house, even if, even if it's not done, even if it is done imperfectly. Praise her for how she looks out for your family to make sure everyone has right clothes and the house is stocked correctly. Praise her whenever she fixes herself up and she puts on makeup and nice clothes. Never forget to praise her for this. Tell her she is beautiful. This is by no means the complete guide to a successful marriage, but is a good start. I can honestly say that Sheila, and I know Sheila would agree, this class has made a huge impact on our marriage and the way we approach our walk with the Lord. I would encourage anyone who is interested in getting more out of your Christian walk to sign up for this class. The downside, the only downside is that I had to spend Saturday nights with Dee and a bunch of guys for the last eight months. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Paul Reisinger. This is my wife, Brenda. We have four J's. Jordan, Josh, Josie, and Jackson are our children. I have been in the class with Dee also for the last eight months. That was very well done, by the way. Um, we memorized scripture, we made goals, and we worked on growing in leadership. Today I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and uh, the topic that I'm going to bring up is bitterness which is one of our discussions of one of our weeks. The Reisingers, which is my last name, are very bitter. That's what, that's what I would call my, my dad's family, and all the way back through my grandparents. We have a, a history of bitterness, and that wouldn't be something you'd want to have. Um, the Reisingers are a family with seven children. My dad was number four. Their dad left the family when my dad was ten. My grandmother had a very strong personality, but also had a lot of bitterness in her life. As Graham went, so went the kids. When I was young, I remember my grandmother and my aunts and uncles at family get-togethers would always end up in arguments and tempers would flare. By the time I was a teenager, most of the Reisingers didn't talk anymore. They carried so much bitterness from old hurts and disappointments that they all went their separate ways and they left their family ties behind. In the class we learned from Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
One major problem in this scenario is that my family were not Christians. Their bitterness was all that they knew. They and we all need what Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Another example of bitterness in my life is more personal. It's my dad and football. I played football from the fourth grade through high school. In high school, our team won back-to-back state championships my junior and senior year, and I was an integral part of that success. There was no other, there was only one thing that always bugged me, even with success. My dad never came to watch me play. So the night before my last high school football game, I went to my dad and asked if he would come watch my last game, the state championship. He said no. So we went on and won the game, and I probably had one of the best games I ever played, but my dad was not there. I really had no idea until years later how much bitterness I held against my dad from that one event in my life. Unforgiveness created so much bitterness and resentment in my heart that I was doing what my older relatives had done years before, and I was a Christian. We learn in the class that Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive those who who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Well, for many years, I held on to this bitterness and was not willing to follow, was not following Jesus. But then something happened that changed everything. In 1997, I was married for just under two years. I received a phone call that nobody wants to get. It changed my life dramatically. My wife was killed in a car accident. She was killed instantly by a truck driver who had hit their stopped car in a construction zone on a freeway in Minnesota. Needless to say, my bitterness reached an all-new level. In Matthew 18, 34, and 35, Jesus tells about a servant who wouldn't forgive another even though the king had forgiven him. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid the entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do for you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Well, after about a year of dark times and desperate need, I was at a Y in the road. Drowning myself, myself in deep despair or reaching out to the one who could lift me to a new life and change more than my circumstances. I chose Jesus, and after growing deeper and deeper into the Bible and the Christian life, I found I learned something else. If I had have been forgiven, I need to forgive others. I needed to forgive my dad for missing my games. I needed to forgive the truck driver for taking a life And most of all, I needed to repent of all bitterness that had held me down for years and lay them at the foot of the cross. Although I am still human and human emotions and, and still have bitterness occasionally, I know how to forgive others and pray for my heart to be right with God. Just to close the circle on my bitterness history, my dad and I had a much better relationship for his last 20 years. We were much closer and enjoyed each other's company. The truck driver is in my prayers. I've never, never seen or met him, but I'm praying that he knows his Savior. I can't hold on to the bitterness towards him, knowing that his eternity is much more important. The Reisingers are still not healed after many years, 
now two siblings and my grandmother have passed on, unfortunately all, all carrying heavy burdens. I spoke with my youngest uncle three years ago after my dad's funeral about his brother that needs help because of dementia and Alzheimer's symptoms. And he said, how can I help him when I don't even like him? The bitterness is very deep. Ephesians 4:32 through 5:2, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What I learned most importantly is that forgiving quickly doesn't let bitterness take root. And loving others as Christ has loved and forgiven us keeps us focused on what really matters. I would recommend leadership class to anyone looking to learn more about living life as a Christian and growing closer to God. Thank you. Now my wife, Brenda. And he's going to stay up here with me. He's my, he's my security. In fact, can I just do this and read it? Because <laughs> that would be really great. But okay, yeah. So I'm a little stand a little closer. Thanks. <laughs> okay, that would be really nice. Um, okay, so I did not know what he was going to talk about. Well, I mean, I knew what he was going to talk about, but I did not hear anything else. So um, that was new to me, and I'm um, going to try not to cry here, but I, he shouldn't have come before me. <laughs> That's okay. Okay, my name is Brenda Reisinger, and um, when I heard about this class, I knew it was perfect timing for Paul and I to dig in, get involved, and learn some things, even though we were new to JBC. And I won't lie, I started out strong, then January hit with some COVID and major life transitions and struggles, but I knew even then it was more important for me to keep trying to attend. Um, I missed a lot of classes, but I learned so much about scripture, prayer, making goals, leadership, and so much more. Um, Several classes spoke to me, but I will pick bitterness um, because that one I am most convicted in. And I also choose bitterness because I confess I struggle with this with my husband. Um, and to kind of open up the circle, which this is not in my notes, about what he had said his wife was killed by a truck driver, um, my... Um, my husband had died from cancer, and I had the first two J's um, with my husband who had passed away from cancer, and we were a young couple. And um, I met Paul at church as a um, new coming back um, to the Lord, and um, we uh, jumped in, and we had some, we had we got married. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there are some things about bitterness that I was reminded of, learned, and would like to publicly say that I will also work on. And a couple of points that were from class that
that were really good for me to learn was God has forgiven each of us of our sins because our faith in Christ, not for anything good we have done or will do. And God ex expects that because he has forgiven us that we will forgive others. And if we do not forgive others, God will not forgive us. And you might have to forgive the same person for the same offense 490 days in a row. And being quick to forgive is a habit that is learned by practice. Um, if we don't forgive others, God will not forgive us. And I have a lot to be forgiven for. Matthew 6, 14 or 15, which I think he had also said, was for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And that's intense. I want to be forgiven, and I want to forgive, and I want to live a bitter free life. This is one of my favorite yet hardest and life-changing lessons. Even though I struggled finish the, finishing the class strong, I walked away with much to gain and being closer to the Lord. Hiding God's word in my heart by memorizing verses and learning to be consistent with my morning prayer. I would like to encourage you, if you have not taken the class, dig in and try and do what you can and you will be changed. Thank you. No, it's not on. Is this on? Well, good morning to all of you. Some of you may recognize me as I help greet and welcome people in on Sunday morning. My name is James Farmer. I'm enrolled in Pastor D's leadership class. A little introduction about myself. My wife Sage and I have been attending JBC for about four and a half years. We were baptized together in July of 2018 at Lake Charles, and a few months later we were married here at JBC at the small chapel. I would like to ask all of you a question this morning. How important is humility in a man's life? According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, men account for 93% of all workplace fatalities. U.S. Department of Defense states men account for 97% of all war fatalities. The United Nations Office on Drug and Crime reports 79% of homicide victims are men. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that nearly half of all fathers without visitation rights still financially support their children. The World Health Organization reports that 80% of all suicide victims are men. National Coalition of the Homeless reports that 75% of single homeless people are men. Parity, a research group, has reported that now 40% of domestic abuse victims are men. The data suggests that men are disposable, despised, and despicable. That men are replaceable. There's nothing special about being a man. It is odd, however, I read those statistics with a different thought in mind. Men are willing to support their families, even at great risk and cost to themselves. The statistics show that when they fail in that basic duty to provide, the weight of that failure leads to great numbers of homelessness, and when they feel no hope, take their own life in astonishing numbers. When there is a war to be fought, men will overwhelmingly stand in the gap and risk their lives for God, family, and country. John 15:13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. In America today, the media is constantly bombarding people with the message, men are bad. That masculinity is something to be avoided and the root of all evil. Are men capable of evil? 
of course. I've seen it firsthand. I was a corrections officer for 28 years. Ironically, a statistic which has been left out of the media is eight out of 10 young men residing in jail today came from a home with one parent. I don't want to draw any conclusions, but I think that there might be a connection. How important is humility in a man's life? The Greek word translated as humility is tapanu, literally refers to height and suggests making oneself low or close to the ground. The Latin root of the word humble, humus, means the ground or earth. Even today, we talk about status and class in terms of height, with people being seen as higher or upper or lower. Humility is making ourselves lower, not in the physical, but the social sense. Status is not the same as identity. Humility does not call us to be less than what we are. It is examining our perception of ourselves when compared to others. Ask yourself this question. How might I relate differently to my wife, my children, my employees, my students, if I were a more humble person? Humble or humility appears 30 times in the New Testament. I would venture a guess this is pretty important for us as believers. Matthew 11:29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. James 4, 6 says, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Being a humble man is one's willingness to be a mound of clay, to ever be shaped over the course of life, to grow, mature, and acknowledge there is not an end to the climb of being a man. There is no finish line other than when our Father promotes us to heaven and calls us home. As men, we have to exile our pride and set a daily goal to humble yourself before God. Humility is the foundation of the house you are constructing throughout life. It will give you the platform to learn many new things. Humility means acknowledging that as a man, you may not have all the answers, that you might need help. This is certainly a challenge men face, as I did, to exile your pride. Be humble, seek wisdom from others. In my opinion, pride is the single most disruptive force in our growth as men. Being a humble man is a core component to good leadership. In fact, I believe it affects all parts of your life. This will improve all roles you find yourself in, being a husband, father, brother, or son. I cannot stress this enough. If you can't push the pride out of your heart to make room for spiritual growth, to display an eagerness to learn, you will often struggle with the challenges that are abundant in everyday life. From my perspective, having a humble heart is necessary for you to be a great leader. There are good leaders, and then there are great leaders. The difference is vast between the two. A good leader can be identified as someone who has some good qualities and is overall pretty competent. A great leader is one who will humble and sacrifice for his family, his church, his employees, his students, inspiring those he sacrifices for to do likewise for others. Jesus is the perfect model for this. Pastor D and Pastor Mike have demonstrated to us over this course of last year and a half that everything does indeed rise and fall on leadership. The success or failure of your church, your marriage, your family, your job, your ministry, and many other aspects of your life all depend on leadership. How do you get better at being a leader? My answer, start with being a humble man. In order to be a great husband, a great leader, in my opinion, you need to be able to examine yourself and acknowledge that you need to grow and mature spiritually. A humble husband has a hungry heart for the Lord and seeks to follow Christ's commands. He submits to his Savior Jesus before he expects submission from his wife. A humble husband hears from God before he seeks to direct his family. It is from a position of humility that his prayers are not hindered. Furthermore, a husband who walks in humility is considerate and caring of his wife. 
He makes her feel special daily, especially on her birthday, wedding anniversary, and special days in between. Humility is respectful and loving, always watching for ways to honor God's gift, his wife. Love and respect are twin traits of humility that tower over pride. A humble husband is quick to admit he does not know everything. He values his wife's opinion and advice. Before a major decision, he and his wife pray for wisdom and direction. She is comforted that he is accountable to God Almighty. Humility invites trust. I grew up in an era when the mantra was, actions speak louder than words. This was my goalpost as a man my entire life. Don't just talk about it, be about it. Talk is cheap. We've probably all heard a variation of this cliche in our lives. When I started leadership class a year ago, I had several goals, one of which was to pray with my wife corporately once per day. As my wife and I began praying with each other, we would pray for the needs of others, and I began finishing my prayers by thanking the Lord for all, my, all the gifts that my wife had that I do not possess. I thanked him for her strengths. I expressed my love for my wife to God. I remember the first time I prayed this, I thought I had heard her sniffling, and I thought to myself, is my wife crying? When my wife and I finished praying, I asked her if I had said something wrong. She said, no, not at all, and in fact, she was quite happy. I was confused, naturally. Sage, my wife said to me, it is nice to hear how you feel about me. I don't know how to express this to you all other than to say I felt convicted. I was guilty. See, I treated my wife the way I desired to be treated, with actions. With those actions, I assumed that she would feel loved. I assumed. I never stopped to consider that she would desire to hear my feelings about her, that she needed to hear it. I was embarrassed. The clarity in that moment was like a punch in the gut. We were all raised with the idea that you treat others how you want to be treated. In principle, this seems like a good foundation for life. But what if I'm a man who appreciates solitude? Is this good for my wife? Is this good for my children or grandchildren? I have concluded that it is not. How important is humility and leadership at work? Well, according to Dr. Robert Hogan, charismatic leaders tend to focus on personal advancement. Humble leaders tend to focus on team performance and guiding their employees. Effective leaders are willing to admit their mistakes, share credit, and learn from others. Humility and leadership also leads to higher rates of employee engagement, more job satisfaction, and lower turnover rates. Humility is broadly defined as self-awareness, appreciating others' strengths and contributions, and openness to new ideas, feedback and regarding one's performance. Leaders who are humble have a better grasp on organizational needs and make better informed decisions about task performance. What's more is that humble leaders help foster a culture of development with their employees by legitimizing learning and personal development. Humility also encourages cultures of openness and trust and recognition, which are important precursors to success. Being a leader means you are willing to follow, to learn from others, to accept you don't know it all, seek wisdom, acknowledge fault, confessing your sins, looking to scripture to learn, and humbling yourself to God and ask for help. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your pathway straight. So I have a message for men today in the church. You are a son of God, whom through the crucible of life and the furnace of trials will be shaped into a man more like Christ. Honor your father and mother. Love and sacrifice for your wife and children. Humble yourself before God and ask for help. Acknowledge there are more ways to accomplish tasks in life than your own. Bear witness to those to yet come into the family of God. Be defenders of the faith, defenders of your wives and children, against wicked and perverse teachings and doctrines of this world. Build up your church, the Bride of Christ, which in itself is the example of the perfect marriage.
I would like to encourage everyone who has not taken a leadership class to consider doing so. I cannot express this enough. It will change your life. It will challenge you, and it will humble you. There is, no, there is so much more to this life than what you think you may know. Just admit to yourself that there might be a better way. In closing, I want to thank you for your time listening. There is no question that today in our culture, the role of men is being depreciated. Being a better man, leader, husband, father, or son will certainly make the difference in our culture today. It has to, one family at a time. In closing, I want to leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Thank you. morning. My name is Pete, and my family and I have been attending JBC for about a year and a half, and this church has been a blessing in many ways. Gathering together and getting plugged into the church with Sunday services have given us a desire to seek growth in our faith in Christ. My wife and I decided to take the Leadership One classes with Pastor D didn't know what to expect going into the class. I knew making a commitment like this was going to be a challenge. I needed some accountability, and this class was exactly what I needed in order to grow in my faith. I have always struggled with the desire to read books or study and be consistent in either. This class has helped me realize I was lacking in both. Reading my Bible daily and praying are disciplines that take work and energy and something I have not been doing. In this class, we discuss and learn about seven different disciplines that every Christian should be pursuing in order to grow in their faith. The discipline that has had the biggest impact is Bible reading. The greatest lack in Christians is faithfully practicing the basic disciplines of the Christian life. God desires fellowship with us. We receive that desire through reading his word, abiding in his word. When we memorize and meditate on it, it becomes hidden in our hearts so that we may not sin against the Lord. In Matthew 6.33 it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is urging us to seek salvation, and with it come the full care and provision of God. Reading God's word will help us proclaim the gospel message and defend our faith. Christians who faithfully practice Bible reading every day will have a real, a good, and growing relationship with God. It says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Our lives are not our own. We are God's vessels. We never stop maturing in knowledge and truth until Christ returns or we die in death. The discipline of Bible reading isn't just reading your Bible to check it off your list of things to do. 
but we need to study it. We need to examine it and meditate on it. In Joshua 1.8 it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. He tells us to meditate on it, meaning to read with thoughtfulness, to linger over God's word. We see it as spiritual food of those who serve him and are seeking a deeper understanding and application of scripture. God will bless us in our faithfulness in reading his word. We will grow stronger and mature in our Christian life and walk with the Lord. Spiritual growth is marked, is always marked by craving and delight in God's word. A Christian develops a desire for the truth in God's word by one remembering who gives life to eliminate sin from their life, to admit their need for God's truth, to pursue spiritual growth and maturity, and to know God's blessing for us. In Psalms 1, 2, and 3, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. God is the one who plants us by the stream. Salvation is his wonderful work of grace. Yet there is responsibility in applying ourselves. Being productive and faithful in our lives is dependent on our faithfulness in reading the Bible. Wisdom enters the hearts of those who faithfully fill their mind with the wisdom of God, his word. How much faith we have is a direct result of how much of the Bible we have. What should be our motivation for Bible reading. There are three essentials that God loves. He loves his word, his people, and his church. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. Thomas Watson says, Scripture is a love letter from God. God loves his word. He delights over it. It tells a story about God from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about telling man about Christ the Redeemer that has come and has finished his sufficient work for us and will come again for his church. What does that do for us? It reorients our perspective towards everything. It shows us what God loves. And so it's not a duty, but it's a delight. Take it, just, take it beyond just a checklist. Reading God's word is essential. This is something that God loves, and as a Christian and dwelt by the Spirit of God, we should love what God loves. John 15, 4, 11 says... Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, 
unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. True believers obey God's commands. From this obedience, we will experience true joy. How can God use us if we don't engage? Abide in me means to remain or stay around. As we abide and meditate and submit to his word, we become devoted to his will. God's word is alive and active. Without it, we starve spiritually. We will lack in bearing fruit and are vulnerable to sin and temptation. We are in training, and that takes discipline. And discipline takes faith and trust in the Lord. Reading his word daily will draw you closer to Christ, what he has done for you. Bible reading, prayer, giving, gathering together, seeking wisdom, worship, self-examination, and confession are all disciplines we as believers need to be faithfully practicing. Where are you in your daily walk with the Lord? I want to encourage you to be faithful. Engage your life into these basic disciplines. You will grow spiritually and bear much fruit. Train and let the Holy Spirit lead you guide you, and help you overcome sin in your life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. All of God's word contains God's will, It affirms what we can do and prohibits what not to do. God's will includes salvation, self-sacrifice, spirit-filling, submission, suffering, satisfaction, contentment, and sanctification. We will receive what God has promised and to trust in Christ fully by living daily in the will of the Father. The discipline of Bible reading will be pleasing to God. He will give us good discernment of truth and error from meditating and memorizing the Bible. We will fill our minds with positive thinking and true joy, and we feed regularly 
as we feed regularly on the word of God. In Jeremiah 15, 16, it says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I hope and pray that you are feeding on God's word, being cleansed daily and meditating and memorizing his word. This leadership class has helped me realize how important the discipline of Bible reading is to grow my relationship with the Lord. Growth will occur if we pursue what God loves, his word, his people, and his church. Make a goal to read the Bible. Put into practice these disciplines that you will bear fruit and be a witness to this world. Pastor and teacher Stephen Lawson says, the more we devour the word, the more we want it. The more we disregard the word, the less we desire it. By taking this class, God has given me an appetite and hunger to feed on his word. When I read the Bible, I feel he is shaping my heart, renewing my mind, and that challenges me, stimulates me, convicts me, gives me enthusiasm, and empowers me with his strength. It's all of that, God's work in me, through his word, by his spirit. I want to encourage you to make a commitment and have a desire to mature in your faith in Christ. This class will give you some disciplines to help you. I want to close with Colossians 2, 6, and 7. As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. Thanks. Apparently, I'm shorter than they are. Good morning, everyone. Um, I was told that this uh, would have to be between 10 and 15 minutes, and uh, the timer when I did it at home said 9 minutes and 59 seconds. So I'm hoping I'm going to talk a little bit slower, and we'll see if it works out. For you, those of you who don't know me, my name is Joshua Fisher. I've been going to JBC for a little over a year and a half, and for the past eight months of those, I've been in D's Leadership One class. Throughout that journey, I have been able to learn a lot of things and uh, been able to grow, uh, I, I think, a lot um, from who I was before I joined the class. As we were going through these lessons, they were all helpful and all forced me to... Uh, mature myself, but there were a couple that really, really stood out, things that I hadn't done uh, previously or had just never really thought about. And one of the things that I had dismissed that came up was scripture memorization. That was something that I thought of as like, oh yeah, we do, we do uh, Bible memory verses when you're in Sunday school as a kid, and then when you grow up, you just kind of stop. And I don't know why I thought that, but uh, for some reason, that was just where I was. But going through his class, that was one of the things that really made a major impact in my life. 
Before I had joined Dee's leadership class, I had done counseling with his brother, Cliff, here at the church. And one of the things that Cliff had tried to make me do was also scripture memorization. Throughout that, I had been forced to learn a little bit, but a little history about me, for those of you who don't know. My memory sucks, so (laughs) I had a real difficult time with that. I would resist it a lot at first. I used to make excuses. I, I can't do it, or uh, I'm not naturally good with memory, or, or I don't need to have half the Bible memorized to serve God, which is true, but it doesn't hurt. One day, in one of the leadership classes, it really, really started to get to me why I was resisting this so much. I couldn't figure out what about it bugged me. Finally, I realized what it was is... I was lazy. I didn't, I didn't want to grow. I wanted to grow, but I didn't want to put in the work to grow. So, I also made an excuse that I didn't have a lot of time. I was working full time. I had, you know, life and stuff going on, and I was just, you know, it never seemed like I had, you know, 15, 20 minutes to sit down and work on a bunch of verses. But then I started to think about it, and I always seem to make time for an episode of a TV show once a week or, or a nap when I was tired. And yet, for some reason, as a Christian, I couldn't make time for God's Word in my life. But as I was considering this one day, I realized that I love God, and I want to please Him. And as that... What better way to do that than to read his word, to get to know his word, to learn him through his word? Why couldn't I spend 10 minutes a day practicing Bible verses? Looking back now, I'm able to recognize how scripture memory has impacted my life and see why it's made such a big difference and why it's so important. I used to think that scripture memorization was not a big deal, that uh, it was just kind of good but not necessary to one's life. And I think there's a fair amount of people who also just kind of dismiss it as not super important. Hopefully today, with this uh, sermon, I'm able to uh, share my testimony on what that did in my life and encourage you guys to also incorporate scripture memorization into your own lives as well. Memory is a huge gift from God that he has given us and scripture memorization in particular is something that he gave us that helps all Christians do to help how it helps fight off our sin nature and take your caps thought your thoughts captive. It grows your brain and makes you smarter. And it brings God's blessing to your spiritual life and helps you to grow and mature as a Christian in Him. Firstly, I would like to talk about Bible memories, uh, practical uses in spiritual warfare. A basic principle of the human mind that has been found by psychological uh, research and also just from common sense in our own human experience and that is what you put into your mind will come out 
It will affect you, it will affect your choices, and it will affect your actions. Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, once said, be careful what you learn because your mind is so powerful that you will become what you put into your head. If I only ever filled my mind with entertaining TV shows, fun music, and crazy cat videos on YouTube or Facebook, chances are that when I'm facing a difficult decision or a trial, none of that's going to help me. None of that will be to my advantage. Sure, when I'm sad and I remember that funny video of the cat stalking up on the mouse only to freak out and run away scared to the sound of Beethoven's fifth is funny and may cheer me up, but... uh, Is it really going to make a difference in my life? Everyone is born with a sin nature. We all struggle with our flesh and with temptation and for the desires of this world. But one of the most effective ways to combat temptation is with memorized scripture. I can't tell you how many times that I've been angry or or bitter or lustful or envious, been being cruel to others, or just in a bad mood, and, and then I've had a verse pop into my mind that I memorized in leadership class that made me snap out of it, that made me be like, life is good, God is good, God has blessed me, and uh, it really, really helps. As a human, I unfortunately do not have complete control over my own thoughts, Thoughts are put into my head by not just myself, but also by the world, by Satan, by everything around me. And some of those I really, really don't like having in my head. (laughs) But what I can do is I can use the tools that God has given me to redirect those thoughts, to guide those thoughts, and to point myself towards who I want to be. I may not be able to control my thoughts, but I can definitely manipulate them. Manipulating your brain with scripture is the easiest way to ward away thoughts that the devil has put into your head. Spiritual warfare is all about fighting, and scripture memory is our sword. Secondly today, I would like to talk about how scripture memory has given my brain superpowers. Since starting on the journey of memorization... There have been marked, noticeable changes in my life, both in just my general thinking ability, in my ability to concentrate, and also in my willpower, which, for those of you who know me, is, may not always be a good thing. Our brains are just like muscles. If we use them, if we exercise them, they'll grow stronger. If we let them sit and don't do anything with them, then they're just kind of going to break down. Something I realized when I first started seriously memorizing verses was that I wasn't really stimulating my brain enough to make it think, to make it work right. I would always read the Bible, but I had a hard time studying the Bible. I would always read it and I could understand it, but I never really got anything real out of it. And as I've been memorizing scripture, that has changed. And I realized that it's because my brain just couldn't think deep enough to really get into it and study it. Part of my job at 
the flooring company I work at revolves around selling the floor at the flooring company I work at. And one of the things that I do is I call customers a lot and I talk to them. Something that can make a customer's day and honestly seal the deal on a sale is when you remember stuff, when you remember the customer's name, when you remember their order, the details, when you are able to remember the, the specifications on the flooring when, when you know your product. I have seen my memory grow in the past few months pretty majorly. I, I used to have a hard time remembering almost anything, even people's names. But uh, in the last couple months, I've been able to remember whole, whole conversations. I've been able to remember a phone number after hearing it once on the phone. I have half of our stock at our warehouse memorized, and there's a pretty noticeable change in my life. My ability to think clearly has improved. My recall has improved. My concentration has improved. And the more, memorize, the more verses I memorize, the easier it seems to get and the better my memory seems to get. The longer I consistently practice them, the more I remember them and the more I remember about everything. Lastly, but not least, I would like to bring up how memorizing the Bible has brought God's blessing into my life and impacted my spiritual faith. It has influenced both me and those around me as well. In Psalm 1, the Bible says, But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf shall not wither. Whatever they do will prosper. God has promised to bless those who learn his word and who love him and to make them prosper. He promises that they will bear fruit, that they will not shrivel up and die. I have seen that in abundance in my own life. From things like a giant leap in my spiritual growth to God blessing me with a job that I never thought I could get to him uh, supplying me with a car for cheap after I totaled my last one, to him uh, giving me friends and, and family and a church that I am super thankful for and don't deserve. And also him giving me joy and peace and a knowledge that I can rest securely in him and that his words are always there for me no matter what. Through my growth in God, I have been able to influence my friend and strengthen my relationships with those around me. As God has been changing my life through leadership class, he has made me better able to minister to friends. He has helped to guide me towards who I want to be and help solidify and repair relationships with my parents and with friends who I had kind of fallen away from for a while. Dee's leadership class in the scripture memorization discipline has made me the man who can stand up here today and actually give a speech without collapsing halfway through and forgetting it. My life as a Christian has been overflowing with progress and growth in the last eight months, and my desire for God and my desire to learn his word has 
multiplied greatly. I believe that I'm starting to run a little short on time, but um, in closing, I would just like to say uh, how much of a change has come over me personally and how big an impact this class has made in my life. As I've learned in it, I've been able to better deal with sin and temptation. My mind has grown stronger, and I've become better at daily tasks and going through life. And God has used that learning to bless me and to bless those around me and use me as a pillar for him. God has filled my life with blessing after blessing after blessing. He has taken who I am and molded me into a completely different person. I believe that actions and how one lives are the greatest testimony one can have. And I hope that as I've grown and as I've gotten to know God's word a little better, that I can have that testimony, that I can minister to someone through my life. I pray that I can continue to learn and, and hope that uh, I will take the Leadership 2 class next year and that that will be just as fruitful in my life. I'd like to thank D. Duke and this entire church for supporting me and for uh, helping me to learn and grow and uh, for always pushing me to improve. Thank you guys very much for listening. I love you all, and uh, hopefully I'll see you next year. Good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Luke Melskow, and I've been coming to JBC for close to a year now. For the past nine months, I've had the privilege of taking Pastor D's leadership class. Today, I'm going to share with you a little about myself and some of the most impactful things that I learned from the class, which have provoked great change in my life. From a young age, I was raised in the church and have believed in God for all of my life. I went to Sunday school, youth group, and was involved in high school ministry. In addition to regularly attending church, I went to a private Christian school where the Bible was taught and everyone believed in God. For my entire life, I have been taught the truth of Christianity. However, despite being raised a Christian, as I grew older, I began to have questions about the existence of God and the teachings of the Bible. A few of the questions that I would routinely ask myself are, if God is really real, why have I never tangibly seen, heard, or felt him? Is the Bible real and can it be trusted? Finally, why does the scientific community as a whole dismiss the idea of God and liken it to the belief in fairy tales? Like many, I am a scientific, logical person, and there seemed to be an inconsistency between my personal beliefs and the real world. I never stopped believing in God or the truth of his word. Nonetheless, questions and doubts like these caused great hesitancy in my faith. I thought that the key to growing in my relationship with God and maturing as a Christian hinged on crushing these doubts and answering the many questions that I had. To do this, I became very interested in apologetics, which is the defense of Christianity through mainly scientific and philosophical arguments. For about a year and a half, I read various books, listened to podcasts, and watched numerous debates on YouTube, all pertaining to the defense of Christianity. And to say that my doubts and questions were answered is an understatement. Without getting sidetracked, I discovered that it is quite possible to prove, prove beyond reasonable doubt that Christianity is true and that a Christian worldview is by far the most reasonable, scientific, and philosophically sound position a person can have. My knowledge of God grew immensely, and I no longer questioned his existence. Despite this, 
despite my newfound confidence and belief that God was real and that his word was true, I did not feel as though I had matured much as a Christian. Previously, I had thought that all I needed was for my doubts and questions to disappear, and then I would have true faith in God. Yet here I was, with no doubts, believing fully that God was real, and I felt no closer to him than before. You see, intellectually believing in God is not the same as having faith in him. James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe in God and tremble. Mere belief in God, as it turns out, is not that special, nor is it what makes a Christian a Christian. Belief in God is not what causes our relationship with him to grow. The difference between believing in God and having true faith in him is the difference between a vanilla, lukewarm Christian and someone who is on fire for God and bearing much fruit. A common story told to illustrate this is one of two farmers in the middle of a drought. The farmers desperately needed rain to grow their crops, so they both cried out to God and pleaded with him to send rain. Yet only one went out and prepared his fields to receive it. Both of these farmers believed in God. Only one had faith that he would send the rain. To grow in our relationship with God, we must not only believe that he exists, but have faith that he is alive and working. The question then becomes, if knowing more about God does not increase our faith, then how exactly do we grow our faith in God? Prayer is the number one tool that God has given us to grow our faith in him. Every second spent praying to God is done in faith that someone who we cannot see is actively listening. Spending time praying to God every day will drastically grow our faith in him. I have learned that prayer is also the number one way to grow in our relationship with God. If you want to have a better relationship with someone, you spend more time with them. The same is true with God. Time devoted to God in prayer grows our relationship with him and our faith in him. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It is not a coincidence that the author of this passage compares drunkenness with being spiritual, as they are more similar than one might think. If you want to get a little drunk, drink a little alcohol. If you want to be a lot drunk, drink a lot of alcohol. Similarly, if you want to be weak spiritually and have a weak relationship with God, pray a little. If you want a strong relationship with God, pray a lot. One of the laws of God that is seen throughout the Bible and can be observed on a daily basis is the law of the harvest. This is commonly known as reaping what you sow. It states that for everything we do, there will be a consequence, either good or bad, which we will reap. Prayer is no different. Those who spend significant time devoted to God in prayer will reap many blessings from it. Contrastingly, those who pray a little will be blessed a little. Indeed, in Psalms 834, God says, Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorsteps. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Taking leadership class has transformed my prayer life. Therefore, I have grown more as a Christian in the past nine months than I have in years. Prayer, and specifically the volume of time spent praying, is the most neglected aspect of the Christian life in the church. Is it any wonder, then, that so many people, specifically young people, end up walking away from God? An unhealthy prayer life leads to a weak relationship with God and little faith that he is present and very much alive and actively working. Because of this, our time spent in prayer with God should be at least as important as our job. Most people maintain faithfulness to a job because they see the tangible benefits coming from it in the form of a paycheck. Likewise, those who faithfully devote time to God will reap many rewards and benefits from it. Also, like a job, we should have a specific place and time that we go to pray. Historically, prayer was something that I did 
at night in my bed as I drifted off to sleep. I would usually fall asleep halfway through my prayer and not be very focused even at the beginning. Now I pray every night, usually around 9.30 p.m., seated at my desk. This little change in location and time has drastically increased the quality of my prayer life. Another thing to keep in mind is that prayer is a discipline. It is hard to do because our flesh hates that which is good and brings us closer to God. This makes it especially important to be proactive in planning out where and when we pray. One aspect of prayer that will help us stay committed to our prayer life is corporate prayer with other believers. Corporate prayer is highly emphasized in the New Testament and is something that Jesus practiced regularly. Multiple, multiple believers gathered together in prayer will accomplish more in the heart of God than if they had all prayed separately. In addition to corporate prayer, something that has helped me tremendously in staying committed to my prayer life is saying a daily prayer of commitment every morning. This is a short prayer that is said every morning where you are committing yourself to God and to staying faithful to the basic disciplines of the Christian life. The basic structure is to start by making several I will statements regarding how you will live your life each and every day. Then, at the end, ask God for the strength to be able to keep those commitments. For example, a reduced version of my daily prayer of commitment is, Dear God, you are the Lord of my life. Today, I will do anything you ask me to. Today, I will deny myself and take up my cross for you. Today, I will be devoted to you in prayer and Bible reading. Lord, please give me the strength today that I do not have alone to keep these commitments to you. Amen. This daily prayer is about reminding yourself how you want to live your life and has helped me to stay committed to my prayer life. Finally, it is important to recognize that several things can greatly negate the effects of our prayer and cause God not to hear us. Proverbs 28.9 says, If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are detestable. For the majority of Christians, the most common of these are unconfessed sin and having bitterness in your heart toward another person. Spending part of our time in prayer, confessing our sins to God, and making sure that our heart is pure is an important part of prayer. Applying these principles to my prayer life has caused me to grow greatly in my faith, be more intimate in my relationship with God, and better feel his presence. If you are someone who struggles in your faith and relationship with God, I suggest taking a look at your prayer life and looking to see where you might need to improve. Being faithfully devoted to God is one of the requirements to be given God's authority. God sovereignly gives authority to men and women who have earned it and to whom he can trust. The responsibility of every person is to learn the qualifications God has set to be given his authority and then meet them so that we can be leaders here on earth. It is through qualified leaders that God accomplishes his tasks for his kingdom. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Thus, the health of God's church on earth, the bride of Christ, will rise and fall based on the quantity and quality of qualified leaders in it. If you are someone who is looking to seriously grow in your faith and bear much fruit for the Lord, I would highly suggest taking Pastor D's leadership class. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Jeff Melskow. I'm Luke's dad. Um, like he mentioned, uh, my family and I have been attending JBC since approximately you know July of last year. And prior to that, we attended a church in, in Salem since we moved to Oregon about 20 years ago. Um, my wife, Carrie, and I recently celebrated our 24th anniversary, and we have five kids, um, three boys first, and then two girls from 21 down to 11. 
Uh, this morning, I'm going to share some of my testimony about following God's plan instead of my own. Um, probably about five years ago, maybe a little before that, um, I don't know whether it's reaching an age milestone or you know, just getting older, but reflecting on my life, it's pretty easy to come to the conclusion um, that this is not the life I had planned you know, in my unbelieving early 20s. You know, it's so much more. Um, Carrie and I talk frequently now about how it's easy for us to look back and see how and where God's hand has guided us to where we are now. And I'm so blessed and thankful for that. Um, part of our leadership class is weekly scripture memorization, and I've got you know, four verses to share throughout this um, talk that hit home with me regarding following God's word, God's plan. James 1.25, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So looking intently at the word, abiding by it, this man will be blessed in what he does. I uh, grew up in a religious home, but with an unbiblical view of salvation. Never had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ when I was young. You know, I wasn't saved. In the mid-90s, I was in my early 20s, and I had my life figured out, you know, or so I thought. Um, I had a plan including everything from education, employment, where I was going to live, marriage, kids, etc., you name it. You know, of course, it was my plan and not God's. Uh, at that time, my older brother was going to University of Oregon and, and lived in Portland during the summers. I spent a lot of time helping him move back and forth, and, and on I-5, obviously, right through this area, but never getting off the freeway. It's ironic now how many times I was so close to the community we now live in, but never even saw it back then. Fast forward a few years, and Carrie and I had only been dating a short time, and she was working with the Holy Spirit on my heart. Um, I was living in Olympia and was sent by my employer to visit a facility between Jefferson and Sayo. Finally got off the freeway in this area and took you know, Winter Creek up here just north to Parish Gap down to Jefferson Marion Road. And I remember calling to tell Carrie how beautiful the area was, looking out on that kind of valley that's framed by Winter Creek on the north and Parish Gap on the east. You know, Carrie and I were married in, in, July, in May of 1997, and she was uh, unequally yoked for six months until I became a believer. Um, in November of that year, I started living for the Lord. Um, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your understandings. Your path will be straight. So Solomon, with his gift of extreme wisdom, instructing us to trust in the Lord. But in order to trust in someone else, you must first relinquish trust in yourself, and giving up control is, is hard to do. It was time for me to start trusting in the Lord and not in myself, and honestly, it's something that I still struggle with. You know, thinking about the, the trust fall where you know you're falling back, where you can't see if someone's going to catch you, or if you're on a boat where you feel safer, where you can still see land, or maybe in a plane flying below the clouds where you can still make out landmarks on the ground. We have a predisposition to trusting what we can see and feel, trusting our natural senses and abilities. But Solomon tells us not to lean on our own understanding. You know, sometimes it's much easier for me to say that than to do. Um, I need to remind myself to share with others, especially my children or a younger generation, examples of where trusting in the Lord has resulted in something so much better than any expectation of what I could have done on my own. Sharing those many miracles from you know, an unexpected financial gain in time of need or 
disappointment with a closed door, a missed opportunity that led to something you know, much better down the road. You know, or maybe even a direct example of sharing where you know, I stepped out in faith, trusted him, and the results were more than I could have imagined. Hopefully these examples will build confidence. You know, uh, so an initial reaction to any situation is to be at the mercy of God. Trust him instead of doing you know, my best to make it fit, take care of it, work it out with my own ability. Only with this trust in the Lord will we walk in the places he has determined for our lives. You know, meeting my wife and becoming saved has turned my life into something so much more than I could have ever imagined. You know, God's plan was so much better than my own. Psalm 1, 2, and 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. Having delight in the law of the Lord, having delight in the word, like Dee says, every day, every day, every day, and in whatever he does, he prospers. I kind of envision meeting my unbelieving 20-year-old self and telling him, yeah, your plan's no good, but let me tell you what's better. You're going to have five kids, some conventionally, some unconventionally. They'll eat all your food. They'll break your stuff. You'll spend most of your money on them, and you're going to love it, and you'll actually be sad when they're not around. So, Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Again, the book of the law, every day, every day, do according to it and have prosperous and success. So 26 years ago, I drove into this area for the first time and knew it was a special place. And I, you know, now I sit on my back porch, and when I look out to the east, I see that same stretch of Paris Gap Road that I drove on back then. I'm living in an area that grabbed my attention so long ago, and I know I got here because it was God's plan. So, Carrie, I thank you for your support and encouragement all these years, getting this snowball we're on rolling downhill, and also for being right there alongside me in knowing God gets the glory. Thank you. Wow, um, that's going to be hard to top. So, um, back when I was in, I don't know, like first or second grade, I have like six siblings, and so typically there's a lot of chores to be done because a lot of people to make a mess. Uh, and typically when it was my turn to do the kitchen, because that was the worst spot to do, uh, I would suddenly have to go to the bathroom. And so I couldn't do the kitchen because I had to go to the bathroom. And I wonder if that would, method would work today, but I didn't think that would fly with D, so I'm not going to try that. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Ben Dittman. I'm the high school youth pastor here at Jefferson Baptist Church. I have been for a little bit now. And uh, for those of you who also don't know, we have high school youth group on Tuesdays at 6 to 8. We also have a Sunday school class during the 1015 discipleship hour on Sundays. So there you go. Now you know. Um, today I'm just going to be kind of discussing, I'm going to basically attempt to teach you, show you what I was taught and what I picked up from leadership class so, without further ado, a goal is an expression of the desires of your heart. This is a direct quote from D in leadership class, and it exemplifies what a goal is and what it's for. One of our first tasks in leadership class was to create a list of goals of things we wanted to change in our lives or make into habits or do better. The reason for creating goals is so that we can effectively use the time that God has given us. 
When we don't have goals and just kind of wing it through life, we tend to waste time doing things we don't need to do. The first step in making a goal is figuring out what you want to accomplish. Um, you know, what it is you want to do or need to do to better serve God, uh, serve his kingdom. This is the purpose of a goal and the beginning of making one, uh, the creation of, of sorts. Uh, everyone has goals in life, and some are, you know, big, big goals as far as, like, what you want to do as a career, or, you know, getting married or whatever, things like that. Uh, but there's also goals that are a lot smaller, simply as wanting to read your Bible more or pray, as, uh, as Jared was bringing up. And so uh, we kind of figure some out, but then other times when we don't figure them out, people kind of figure them out for us. We have people who can kind of peer pressure us into doing what they think we should do. You know, when we're kids, our parents decide what we should do. They decide what clothes we wear, uh, we just, you know, whether we brush our teeth, what we eat as food. Uh, but when you become an adult, that kind of changes, it shifts, and you have to decide your own priorities. When I was in high school, I was constantly asked what I wanted to become and what I wanted to do with my life. I asked myself that same question up until last fall. So, as I mentioned, I'm the high school youth pastor at Jefferson Baptist. Um, I've been attending JBC for about 15 to 16 years, and I've been helping with uh, junior high youth group about nine years and high school youth group for about four or five. And so it just uh, really was something I've enjoyed being involved with, being more than a tender but also a participator. And uh, I was very close friends with the previous youth pastor, Jeff Carter, who many of you probably know. And he, back in probably September, he had a kind of a calling on his heart, something he had been praying about for a couple months, and he was called to be the pastor at Central Valley Church down in Halsey. Uh, and I had known him the entire time he worked here uh, as a youth and as a volunteer helping him. And so when he was talking with me about it, it kind of it clicked, uh, it just kind of made sense. Um, a little bit, you know, a couple weeks prior, I had kind of got this feeling like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. There was, there was something I was supposed to be doing, whatever it was, job-wise, or um, just something I was missing. And so I kind of started praying about it and trying to figure it out because I was working a full-time job at a warehouse, and I was making money, and so it's like, well, what else could I be doing? You know, I'm saving money for the future, making money now, what, what is it? And so when G, you know, Jeff came up to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about leaving JBC, my instant thought was, well, who's going to be the next youth pastor? And then it kind of had like a, oh, aha uh-huh moment, and it kind of clicked. And so ever since that has happened, uh, as soon as he gave his notice, I went and talked to Mike and to Dee and uh, just kept praying about it. And ever since then, I've tried to work towards the goal of becoming the best youth pastor that I can be, to train to be the best one I can be. And so uh, the point of all that is that I kind of lucked out and figured out what I wanted to do at the age of 22, which if I had known I was going to be youth, youth pastor way back when I was 18, I probably would have uh, prepared a little bit better. But it's been an awesome learning curve, and I've been enjoying quite a bit of it and uh, hanging out and countering my youth. But all the goals that I made have been in pursuit of becoming as best as I can be as a youth pastor. D uses this phrase quite a bit, in class and out of class, get close to God and do what you want. And it's actually a favorite quote of one of my friends, Jeremy Ott. And it's just, it kind of exemplifies what are you supposed to do. You know, God gives us the desires of things that we enjoy doing and uh, we feel led to do. And it's kind of our task, as, as they made mention of, that is finding out what you need to do and then doing it. Uh, and so making your goals, well, that was the first task we had is to make goals on what we're supposed to do. And so today I'm kind of sharing my main goal that I have used to kind of focus what am I trying to accomplish in youth group.
And that goal is that I would have 30 to 35 youth attending youth group every week, uh, you know, pretty consistently with well-connected relationships. I know them, they know me, I know what's going on in their lives. You know, it's not just numbers, but it's, it's quality, it's, uh, it's time. I know who they are. And so I like this goal a lot. It just kind of expresses, again, my desire to do well in my job, to, to uh, succeed at being a youth pastor. And while it's an awesome goal because it's measurable, it, it shows me where success and where failure are, it's not really clear on how to get there. It's kind of vague on how to get there. And so after I made that goal, I decided, okay, well, what am I going to do to accomplish this goal? And that kind of comes into the second part of goal making, which is the application process. You know, what is this goal going to do? How, how are you going to accomplish it? And so, uh, unfortunately, simply writing a goal of having 30 to 35 youth doesn't make it happen. Uh, that would be super easy if it did, but goals require action and work. Uh, so I thought, well, how am I going to get 30 to 35 kids coming every week consistently? So I, I started thinking, what can I do to make youth group uh, a comfortable place where they want to come, they feel, uh, again, comfortable being there? And so I started making a couple other goals, about three or so, that w I would do to help do better, um, to help get to know the kids or just have traction in their lives. And so uh, one of those goals, which is, oh yeah, so they're my how-to goals. So the first three are, I will attend every church service every week. Uh, that has been a pretty good one, just an opportunity to greet people, get to know people, um, to be known. Uh, just makes it a lot easier when people can know who the youth pastor is and they don't just send their kids to whoever because, you know, parents don't like doing that. Um, my second goal is I will invite every high schooler at church to Sunday school and youth group. I just did that, so checking it off. Um, <laughs> And I will also have a high school game night once a month for the purpose of inviting new kids. Uh, it's just an opportunity for kids to play games, to hang out. I get to talk to them, and it's just it's an awesome opportunity. It's worked pretty well. But speaking of which, we actually have a high school game night tonight from 6 to 9. We'll meet over in the gym. So if you have a high schooler in your home or you are a high schooler, be there. It's going to be fun. Um, yeah, so doing these goals provides a way of bringing kids and making connections with them. They're also really simple on what to do. There's no complications. It's not even a complicated process. It's just, okay, show up at church, greet people, you know, have a game night, which is easy, you know, play games. Um, sorry. Uh, and then I have a couple other goals that I kind of make to keep them coming back. So, you know, I have the ones that get to know them first, but then I have the ones that keep them coming back. Uh, such as taking attendance of every kid and memorizing their names. So, I, again, I know them. I have an, a relationship with them. Uh, hanging out with three youth outside a youth group once a week and creating a prayer request list of each youth every week. Uh, these three goals kind of give me attraction in the kids' lives. Again, it makes me so I know what's going on with them. I have a connection with them. So it's, uh, you know, they feel comfortable. You know, when, you know, with the, as far as with the prayer requests, it just, you know, again, they know that I care about them, because I do. Um, I kind of, you know, I have the first goal of a destination, 30 to 35 youth, and then I have the goals of how to get there, and then I kind of have my last set or version of goals, my motivation goals. That, um, you know, every pastor kind of has their little quotes that they throw out there that get kind of popular, you know, pray every day, every day, every day. Uh, and so this is my little thought process, you know, gets you thinking. So what are you going to do when what you need to do isn't what you want to do? Because unfortunately, I don't always want to 
get up and pray. I don't always want to, you know, do a game night. As fun as they are, they're a lot of work and it's a lot of time. And so I need goals that motivate me to do what I don't always want to do because, you know, I have a flesh and it doesn't always want to do the stuff I need to do. And I kind of, I got that verse from Romans 7.15 and says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I'm practicing, I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. It's just kind of saying like, you know, we have our flesh and we have our spirit and our spirit loves to grow. It wants to grow and our flesh doesn't want to grow. And so it just creates this, uh, just kind of pulling back and forth. And so creating goals that pull me towards the spirit and what I have made goals to do is just incredibly helpful. And so those goals, uh, once I find them, uh, I lost it. There you go. Uh, one of these goals is to pray for each of my youth every day. Much like the prayer request goal, this one kind of puts a kid as a priority in my prayer time. Uh, when I pray for these youth, it gets me thinking about them, what's going on in their lives. Uh, if they have a prayer request that gets answered, you know, I rejoice. I'm, I'm excited with them. Uh, if it doesn't get answered immediately or in the way that, you know, we expected, then I know what the kid will need further prayer and support. And it just, again, it just creates a better connection with the kids. Um, as well as prayer goals, I also have some fun goals. Uh, I will meet with the three youth outside of youth group every week. And that can be anything from going out to eat, going on a hike, going to the beach, just encountering them, hanging out with them, making connections. Uh, one of my own personal fun goals that frequently ties in with the spending time with my youth goal is the goal to ride my dirt bike at least three times a month, which is very fun. But I'm lucky enough to have a group about eight high schoolers who all ride or own dirt bikes. And so it's a great way to kind of, you know, two birds with one stone. I can check off the goal and then also have an extremely enjoyable way to hang out with my youth, uh, just get to know them and do what they love doing. So I'll share two more goals with you, and uh, those goals are I will pray for my leaders every week, and I will meet with my leaders every week. My youth group would cease to function without my leaders, uh, and then my ability to create a healthy, comforting environment for the youth would be impossible. Uh, I can't be everywhere at once, and so having leaders that can be where I can't be and talk to kids when I don't get the option to is just extremely, extremely helpful. And so meeting with, uh, praying for them, you know, same thing as with the youth, it just gives me traction, it builds connection, we, you know, we can get a, a core leader group so that we all are working together for the same goal. Uh, and then the meeting with them creates an opportunity for me to know if something happened that I didn't get a chance to talk to a kid or get to know about. And so both of those are just imperative. They help my youth group run. Um, another point of meeting with them is that I can ask insight for what they think I could do better in the youth group, what I could change, um, what, anything I could do better on my lessons. It just creates a very awesome opportunity to grow. Because unfortunately, I still make mistakes and I'm still learning from them. Uh, I have several more goals, personal and church-centered, and all of them were made by me to shape my relationship with Christ so I can mentor and invest in my youth to help them build their own relationships with God. Um, each and every one of my goals is a deep want of mine. Uh, it's what I think God wants me to work on or to do. And once I've accomplished them or made them a habit, I can then either make them more intense so I can grow more or I can focus on a different character trait entirely. And so it just, you know, it's constantly moving forward. Uh, these goals answer the question of what my priorities are. They answer the question of what my career is. And because of that, I don't have to spend time pondering and thinking about what I could do to be better, because I've already prayed about that, I've already thought about that when I made my goals. Um, another awesome thing about goals is they're all written down. I have them on pieces of paper, they're all numbered off, and I can give them to my leaders or people I trust and I can be honest with, and they can hold me accountable to them. And it just, again, it helps me to accomplish them. When my leaders know what I'm struggling with, 
or what I want to work better on, they can help me to do that, and they can, you know, iron sharpens iron kind of scenario with brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, not to sound too cliche, but in conclusion, uh, goals are about finding your priorities, what you think God wants you to do with your life, figuring out what you need to work on and accomplish your goals. Uh, it's about growing in your walk with Christ. It's figuring out what will motivate you to move forward your, with your goals and complete them on the days you don't feel motivated. And uh, lastly, as Diaz said countless times in leadership class and sermons, get accountability. Find someone you trust, uh, someone who you can be held accountable to that you'll be honest with, and uh, give them your goals so that they can help you grow. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these men who have shared. Thank you for the work they put in for the last eight months, the growth they've experienced. And we pray that you use each one of them in a very unique, special way, according to the giftedness you've given them, open up doors, opportunities. Pray that they will stay faithful to the basic disciplines. And Lord, you will be glorified by the life that they live and the fruit that they bear with their life. Thank you, Lord, for the work you do in people and through people. Pray that you will work through many others in the days ahead. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.